The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter 1, 3-12. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is impermissible, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it is tested by fire, may not be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you may not see him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring that the person or time, the spirit of Christ in them was indicating that he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in things that that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning, as uh, Stacy already uh, introduced me and, uh, and uh, told me, I'm Lee Eric Fesco, and uh, I'm one of the elders at, at Christ Pres. It's a real privilege to be here with you. Uh, I have the privilege of teaching one of the core classes uh, at the Old Hickory location. It's a real treat to be here. Thank you for allowing me to be here, Stacy. Thank you for, uh, for allowing me to uh, be here. This is a great opportunity. I'm here with my wife, Tracy. Uh, who was with me 16 years ago in this very room as, uh, as we exchanged vows. And uh, <laughs> this moment is not lost on me. <laughs> uh, it's great to, great to be your husband. <laughs> That's right. And we have two amazing young boys, Jack and Logan, who make us laugh, laugh every day. I love being their dad. Uh, being a father, I am presented with the challenge of always having to have an answer for their varied and tough questions. You always have to have an answer, even if the answer to that question is, I don't know. I'm going to have to find that out for you later. But many times they're looking for information in the moment, and you want to be able to provide them with answers in the moment that satisfy their heart and mind. You want to be able to answer all of their tough questions and be able to resolve all of their doubt. It was only a couple of weeks ago when one of my boys uh, came up to me. He was followed by his brother, and, and he was in a bit of a huff, and, and apparently they had been uh, arguing, and, and I was asked, Dad, isn't it true that Jesus was baptized by pigeons? You see, it's not enough to have the knowledge to provide your children an answer, but you have to know and understand the background of the question, and maybe even understand the question behind the question, and and, and the context of the question. It's all important. In this particular instance, I'm being called not only to answer the question, 
but to, 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 to resolve an argument. My answer will provide assurance and confidence for one child and, and defeat and humiliation for the other. The stakes are high. So I have to answer this, this question carefully. I have to answer it thoughtfully and do it in such a way that creates a learning moment for both of them. So I offer up my answer to them. I said, well, Jesus was actually baptized by John the Baptist. And we're told that when he came up from the waters that the heavens opened up and the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And then a voice from heaven announced, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then the one son looks at his brother and says, see, pigeons. <laughs> tough questions. Tough questions you have to answer. You have to answer the tough question. There's a tough question that not only parents have to answer for their kids, but it's not just limited to parents and kids. It's a question that every Christian will probably have to answer at some point. Either they have to answer it for themselves or they have to answer it for someone who, who doesn't believe in the, in the Christian worldview. And if we don't take time to think through the answer of this question, if we're not prepared to answer this question and understand the question behind the question, it can have lasting effects and press in on us during our greatest moments of doubt. It's a question that goes something like this. If God is good, then why is there suffering in the world? If God is good, then why is there suffering in the world? The question is further articulated like this. If there's a God and He is good, why does he allow pain and suffering? If he's God and he's all-powerful and he doesn't stop suffering, can he really be good? Or perhaps he's good, but, but he has no power to stop the suffering. He can't stop it and he's powerless to stop it. If he's powerless to stop it, is he really God? You see, it's a tough question. How do we answer this? First of all, let's for argument's sake stipulate one thing, and that is if, if God is really God, that means, by definition, he's all-powerful, okay? If God isn't sovereign, if he doesn't have control of every last atom, every last molecule on the planet and beyond, then, then he really isn't God. If we don't believe in a God who is in control of everything, then we're not really talking about God. The name of this sermon series is, is Doubting Christianity, Examining Seven Core Reasons for Non-Belief. So if we're talking about the Christian God, then we're talking about the sovereign of the universe, we're talking about the one who's in control of all of it. And that's the God we're talking about when, we, when we, we're talking about the God who's in control of everything. And, and, and necessarily, that means he's in control of suffering too. That means he could, at the very least, prevent suffering, but for whatever reason, he chooses not to. Why in the world? Why in the world? If God is in control of everything, why would he allow suffering to persist? We, we could stop for a moment and contemplate what we mean by suffering. You, you, you could just read the headlines. You can read about suffering, unspeakable suffering. You, you know about illness. Some of you are struggling through illness right now. Maybe it's either you or, or, a, or a family member or, or natural disaster you, and the aftermath of natural disaster. So again, if, if God is in control and he has the ability to stop all of it and he doesn't, what in the world is he doing? You see, it's a tough question. It's a tough question. And do you see the question behind the question? What's the question behind the question? Can we trust God? That's the question behind the question. Can we really trust God? If he has the power to stop suffering and he doesn't stop it, what, what's he doing? Can he, can he be trusted? So let, let's, talk about, let's talk about and ask ourselves three things today. Let's ask ourselves where suffering came from, 
or where it started. Then let's ask ourselves what purpose it serves, if any. And then we'll ask ourselves what God is doing about it, where it started, what purpose it serves, and what's he doing about it. So first, where did suffering begin? To, be, to answer that question, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, to the first page of the Bible, okay? We, we read the account of creation. Another attribute of God that we, we hold to is that we believe God is eternal. He's without beginning and without end. He, he eternally existed in perfect fellowship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And in that perfect fellowship, they initiated creation, and that included the creation of humanity, human beings who were cast in the image of God. And then what happened? Adam and Eve decided to do their own thing. They were told what to do and what was expected of them to remain in fellowship with God, but they decided that rather than let God be God, they decided that they would try and play the role of God themselves. And from that point on, because Adam, who, who is your perfect representative, who acted as you would have acted, because he decided that he wanted to play the role of God and veered off from God's perfect plan for humanity and try something else, the world broke. When you veer away from God's design, which was perfect, when you veer away from perfection, you end up with something that is less than perfect. You end up with something that is not perfect. You end up with a fractured world, a broken world. You get a, a world that doesn't work right. And when you have a world that doesn't work right, among the byproducts are, are, are pain and wrongdoing, suffering, natural disaster. Sin entered the world and it spread like a disease, like a cancer. When I was growing up, I would ask my mom if it was okay for me to see movies that had the, the rated R designation to them. And, and uh, I tried to justify it by saying, Mom, it, it's, most, it's mostly a good, good movie. It has, it has good content. It has some bad language to it. it. It's just a little bit of bad stuff. It's just a little bit of bad stuff. And so then my mom would answer, how about you go drink some water out of the toilet? It's just got a little bit of bad stuff to it. <laughs> Checkmate. <laughs> the point is it just took a little bit of bad stuff. It just takes a little, bit of bad, a little bit of sin to fracture the whole of creation. In Romans 5, verse 12, the Apostle Paul tells us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. It was through one man that sin and death entered the world. And the reason it continues to abound now in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul describes the world as groaning in the pains of childbirth. It's a broken world. And this is where it all began and continues to remain broken and, and in this state of disrepair. So this is where it all began. And, and now that it's here with us, what, what are we to make of it? Is, it? is it just running wild now? Is suffering just a thing that we have to deal with and, and it's out of control? Is, is that what we make of suffering now? Do you remember the story of, of uh, Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph with a colorful coat it was sold off by his brothers. He was hauled off to Egypt. He spent several years in prison, forgotten by almost everyone in his world. He reached rock bottom. Eventually, shockingly, through quite the, the bizarre set of circumstances, he was elevated to become the second most powerful person in the world. This is not what his brothers imagined would happen to him when they sold him off to a band of travelers. They meant evil for Joseph. They meant harm for Joseph. And eventually, years after they sold him off, they had to face him, face to face, and they begged for his forgiveness. And what did he tell them? What he told them begins to unlock our understanding of God's position on suffering. 
It's not that God's hands are tied as a result of suffering, but this, what Joseph told his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The evil that we produce, the suffering that comes as a result of the world that that we fractured, God says, what you meant for evil, I will use it for good. I, I will reweave it. I will recreate it for good. What you meant for evil, I will work into something good. So how does that work, right? Is it possible that that he let suffering continue because somehow, someway, it serves a divine purpose? Does suffering serve a purpose? This is our second point. Does suffering actually serve a purpose, a good purpose? If you don't believe in God, then no. No. Suffering serves no purpose, because if you don't believe in God, then everything is random. We're all just living on this great big ball, cascading through the universe, and one day we'll all die. But if you do believe in God, then you believe in a God of order. You believe in a God of purpose. That means you believe in a God who gives meaning and significance to every single thing that happens, that nothing happens for no reason, yes, even suffering. Today's scripture reading came from the book of 1 Peter, and the book of 1 Peter was written by the apostle Peter, and and his purpose for writing this letter was because of suffering. Peter is preaching a message to the early church to prepare them for suffering. He's preparing them because they're about to face the kind of suffering and persecution that you and I know nothing about, at least not here in America. And this point that he's trying to make them is suffering isn't just a bad thing. Rather, suffering is a vehicle for the Christian. Suffering produces something in the Christian Suffering has a purpose for the Christian. He opens his letter to these Christians telling them he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's good news, isn't it? That's great news. Back when I was in, in high school, I was determined to be a professional basketball player. I had such a love for the game, but I had one significant obstacle that was difficult to overcome in my quest to play in the NBA. I was not good at basketball. (laughs) You have to be good at basketball to play in the NBA. And tall, really tall. You have to be tall. I tried out for the team in high school, and I remember when I was, it was cut down day, and the coach called me into his office, and and man, he was so encouraging. Here here are all the great things about you. Man, why is he being so nice to me right now? because he wanted to tell me all the things that he wanted me to remember right before he told me something that would really hurt. Your role on this team is going to be cheering on the sidelines with all the regular, short, unskilled people. (laughs) That's your role this year. So here's the thing. Yes, Peter is starting out this letter extraordinarily positive, all right? He's building up the church because there's something coming, and it's going to hurt. But he's also saying, look, The hurt serves a purpose. It does something for your faith, a faith that is guarded in heaven that can't be stripped away from you. But what's it doing for your faith? Peter then speaks of suffering as a means of testing of faith. If you're like me, that's going to bother you a little bit. What, What is that? At first pass, what does it sound like Peter is saying? Why suffering? To test your faith. What's he saying there? At first pass, it might sound like God is testing you to see how strong you are. Let's see if he can handle this. Let's see if she passes this test and and then is worthy of being called one of my followers. When he uses the word tested, he's not talking as as in a pass or fail pop quiz. Oh, well, his faith wasn't sincere after all. That's what this test has revealed. No, that's not it. 
It's not that Peter is saying that God is checking you through suffering to see how sincere your faith is. He's saying that your faith will be proved genuine by a process of fire. That your faith will be proved genuine by a process of fire. That's why he likens it to gold. What happens when you put gold to the fire? Yes, it melts. But what happens as it melts? The impurities are burned away. And then what remains? Gold. Purified gold. It's not a test of your personal strength of faith. It's a test that draws out and strengthens the faith that was placed there by God himself. A faith that is kept in heaven for you. He says you have it. It's locked away. You can't lose it. So suffering isn't just a useless byproduct of a fallen world. Rather, it serves a specific purpose of strengthening your faith. Some of you know who Johnny Erickson Tata is. She's an author and radio host, and when she was just 17 years old, she misjudged the depth of the water, and she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and suffered a spinal fracture and became paralyzed from the shoulders down. And she's been confined to a wheelchair ever since. She's 69 years old now. She is certainly someone who could say, God, why, why would you allow this to happen to me? Of what purpose is this suffering? Instead, this is what she says. I always say that in a way, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I know that's not biblically correct, but if I were able, I would have my wheelchair up in heaven right next to me when God gives me my brand new glorified body. And I will then turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, she says jokingly, you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. <laughs> Her point is this, and it's affirmed by the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 12:9. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So what purpose does suffering serve? It's not for nothing. It has an effect on us. It produces something in us. It reveals in us our weakness. And then we have a comprehension of that weakness which then draws us to this infinite source of strength. And isn't that a good thing? But is that it? Isn't there an easier way for God to accomplish this? If, if it's his objective to draw us near to him, is suffering really the only way to do that? Is suffering the only way to strengthen our faith? It's not the only way, but understand this. Remember this each time you find yourself in the midst of suffering, Christ himself suffered. When we speak about our faith being strengthened, to what end? How, how strong is strong enough? What's the goal here? How much suffering do we need? The Father has an objective for you, and that's to make you like his son. That's his objective for you each and every day, to make you more and more like his son. And yes, Jesus suffered. So when we suffer, do you see what this means? When we suffer, we're being made to be like his son. This is something my brother has said. He says, if Christ is glorified, if Christ glorified his Father through his suffering, then we are most like Christ when we glorify God in our suffering. So, of what purpose is suffering? Yes, it strengthens our faith. To what end? To the end that it makes us and molds us into the likeness of Christ. But listen, there's still more to the story here. Yes, there's a purpose to suffering. 
Yes, it strengthens our faith. Yes, it makes us more like Christ, but there's still more. He gives us a purpose to suffering, but he's also doing something about suffering, and this is our third point. Let's consider Peter's letter again. He's preparing Christians who are about to be facing suffering of the worst kind, and he says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Do you see what Peter is telling them to, 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 how, what, what to set your minds on? He's telling them to look ahead, look far ahead. Set your gaze on, on, the, on the one that you do not now see, but one day you'll see in glory. We have uh, two dogs at home. One of them is a little bit bigger and one of them is a little smaller. And, and before we got these dogs, our, our sons promised they would help take care of these dogs and take part in the responsibilities that go along with ownership of, of dogs. This statement has proved to be slightly less than true. <laughs> this is a warning to all of you who want to buy pets for your, your children or thinking about one day uh, buying pets for your children. No uncertain terms, it will be you that cares for that pet, full stop. Now, to be fair, yes, they do, they do help out from time to time, and recently I conducted a little behavioral experiment with them because I wanted to prove the actual point that I'm going to try and make with you here in a moment. One afternoon, I said to them, okay, guys, I need you to help me out here. I need you to go take the, the doggy waste bags, and I need you to go to the backyard and, and, and clean up after the dogs. You know what I mean, yes? Okay. Go clean up all the, the little puppy surprises you can find. Well, as you can imagine, they looked at me as if I had just asked them to sign up for summer school. They, they were none too pleased, and, and they, they, they were, they, nevertheless, they obliged and began to take their long faces toward the door. But right before they went out to the backyard, I told them, oh, guys, I meant to tell you, I'll pay you $5 for every puppy surprise that you pick up. Let me tell you something. They shot out that door like they were on fire. And you know, if you showed up at our house right at that moment and looked out the window, you would not have been able to tell the difference between what they were doing and an Easter egg hunt. <laughs> they were saying things like, I saw it first. <laughs> that one is mine. It's it was extraordinary, a complete 180 attitude change. And here's the point that I was trying to prove. What you believe to be true about your future has a direct and immediate impact on how you handle your present circumstances. What you believe to be true about your future will affect how you perceive your present circumstances. And so Peter is telling these Christians who are about to face suffering of the worst kind to set your gaze on the one you don't now see, but believe in nonetheless. Set your gaze on the outcome of your faith, the finished product of, of your, uh, the outcome of your faith, the finished product. This is a passage from, from Revelation 21, and, and this is how the story ends. This is how all of history comes to an end. We're told by the Apostle John, who has a message to Christians that is not unlike the, the message that Peter has, a word to Christians who will soon be facing unspeakable suffering. This is Revelation 21, 4-5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Do you see what he's saying here? Both the apostles, John and Peter, are telling us what to believe about our present reality. They're telling us what will become of present suffering. What are they saying? If we look at another account from John in his gospel, the 11th chapter, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this account. It's the account where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We learn at the start of the chapter that a friend of Jesus named Lazarus was very ill, 
His sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, Jesus, the one that you love is ill. Now, why would they do that? Why would they tell Jesus that Lazarus was ill? Because they knew what he could do. They knew he had the ability to do something about Lazarus' illness. You see, this is, not un- this is not unlike what we're asking here today. This is the question we're asking now. If God is good and suffering ab- is abounds, why doesn't he do something about it? Jesus, Lazarus is suffering. Are you going to do something about it? So Jesus gets word that Lazarus is ill. He's a good distance away, but if he gets going now, he'll get there in time and maybe do something about it. So what does Jesus do? John tells us that Jesus decides to stay two days longer in the place that he was. What? But Jesus, your friend, Lazarus, he's dying. Then Jesus says, hey, I've got an idea. Let's go to Judea. And the disciples all but tell him, are you crazy, Jesus? That's where you just were. Remember, you were just there and they tried to kill you. And, and now you want to go back. And they say, Jesus, remember your friend Lazarus? He's dying. Do you see this isn't like, unlike suffering of our own? Jesus, I'm suffering. Why are you allowing this suffering? You see me suffering. You see that I'm in pain. You're not doing anything about it. Why aren't you moving? Put yourself in the shoes of Mary and Martha. They're suffering too. They see their brother. They see he's about to die. And the only person that can do something about it seems to be dragging his feet. Jesus, you could snap your fingers and take this all away. Yet he doesn't. After his disciples protest, Jesus tells them this. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Listen, you guys, you're not following me. Lazarus is dead. I've stayed here long enough to let Lazarus get all the way to the point of death. And then he tells him, and for your sake, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. For your sake, for your faith, this suffering has gone on this far for your sake, for the strengthening of your faith. When Jesus was about two miles away from Lazarus, where where Lazarus was, he gets word that he's gone and that he'd been dead for four days. Martha meets him and tells him, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus, you could have stopped this. Jesus, you could have stopped this suffering, and you didn't. Jesus, can we trust you? And Jesus tells her, oh, Martha, your brother will rise again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Isn't that line curious? Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Shall never die. I think you probably know how the story goes from here. Spoiler alert, Lazarus is about to be raised from the dead. Jesus will weep at the tomb of Lazarus, angry at death. He shakes his fist at death and raises Lazarus from the dead. He's alive. Lazarus lives. He did it. Now, here's what I find interesting about that. Yes, this is certainly a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do at his own resurrection, but here's the line that I can't get past. Everyone who believes in me shall never die. Here's what I find so interesting about that. Yes, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but guess what? Eventually, he died again. He probably lived several more years after this incident, then after some time, he probably got old and died. And again, he died again. 
What was the point of that? Why raise Lazarus from the dead if he's only going to die again later? Because maybe Jesus was trying to tell us something here. Maybe Jesus is telling us something of where all this suffering is headed. Maybe he's giving us a faint echo of what's to become of all of suffering, and maybe it's this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In this moment here with Lazarus, this is, this is what Jesus is telling us. Yes, there is suffering now. And yes, I have power over this vile intruder we call death. And yes, I will silence death. But I won't just silence death. I'm going to undo death. I'm going to make you new again. I'm going to unwind the clock of sin's curse. I'm going to reverse sin's curse. And what was made wrong, I'm going to reverse it and make it right. I'm going to make all things new again. Do you see what this means? It means, yes, he allows the suffering to occur, but he's going he's to undo it. And somehow, your future glory will be better for having gone through the suffering. Your future glory will be better for having been through the suffering than if you hadn't been through it at all. C.S. Lewis explained it like this. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory agony into glory. Remember what we said earlier? We said that we are most like Christ when we glorify God in our suffering. This is it. This is what he's doing about suffering. Remember when Christ's sufferings were completed and he was raised and he appeared to his disciples? This is Christ. This is the glorified Christ, the Christ who defeated sin and death. And when he appeared to the disciples, what did he do? What did he say to Thomas? He said, here, see my hands? Touch, touch my hands. Give me your hand. Put it to my side here. This is the glorified Christ, a resurrected, glorified body, and he shows them his scars. Wouldn't a scar be an imperfection? Wouldn't those wounds be cleaned up by the one that can raise himself from the dead and put death back in its bottle? Why would he leave the scars? Why, why didn't he remove his own scars? Because those scars of suffering were retained as marks of glory. What will he do with your present suffering? Your present suffering will be made to be marks of glory. Your present suffering will be made into glory just as it was for him. This is what he's doing about suffering. This is what he's doing with your suffering. He will undo it and make it into glory. You see this? He's not passive with suffering. He's actively doing something with it and about it. Let me close with this, this final thought. Whatever you believe, about God and suffering. Whatever it is you conclude, there's one thing you can't say. You can't say that God is indifferent to suffering. You can't say that he doesn't care about suffering. Why? Because as this table reminds us, as this table reminds us, he placed himself in the middle of our suffering. Philippians 2, 5 and following, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When he saw our suffering, there was only one way to fix it. 
there was only one way to unwind and reverse sin's curse, and that one way was to put himself in the middle of it. He took the punishment that was meant for us. He placed it upon his shoulders and gave us his righteousness so that we could be at peace with God. He wasn't indifferent to our suffering. He, he took action against it and placed himself in the middle of it so that we could be restored, so that we could see a glorious end to all suffering. Please pray with me.